This morning we're going to be in 2 Corinthians again. Uh, if you're visiting this morning, if you're here for the child dedication or some, uh, visiting with us for the first time, I'll just say really quickly that one of the ways that we uh, focus our time together on Sunday mornings as a congregation is we, we, we try to work our way systematically through books of the Bible. That helps us to take the Bible as it comes rather than sort of cherry-picking the parts that we like or feel like we already have something to say about. This way we get to sort of sit under it as it is. And our job each week is to figure out what the passage said on its own terms and then what it would look like for us to believe it and embrace it in the lives that we're living this week. So this uh, spring, this winter and spring, we're going to be in Paul's letter to the 2 Corinthians. We started a couple weeks back and we're forging ahead today. Today, the passage that we come to, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, is all about sincerity. It's all about sincerity. Earlier this week, somebody sent me a profile in Rolling Stone magazine on one of the unsuccessful candidates for president from last year. It was sort of a post-mortem on what went wrong with their campaign, why it didn't work, why all the promise was for naught. Basically, the article was an expose on a guy being too prefab, too canned, too lacking in any sort of robust conviction or a steady message. Here's the quote that summarized Rolling Stone's assessment of this candidate. Described the guy as a malleable, transactional, and utterly manufactured candidate bolstered by the elites, period. (laughs) Ouch. I mean, whether they were right or not uh, is beside my point. I don't care. What they were right about this candidate isn't beside the point. My point is that we can't stand that sort of insincerity, can we? Even on a small scale, we can't stand to be talking to somebody who's using a different tone or maybe different words in front of this person than they were using when it was just the two of us. We can't stand someone who says one thing to one person or set of people and another thing to another set of people. We don't like to be on the receiving end of someone who says they're going to do something that we realize later they had no intention of doing. And what we know, if we're really honest, is that every single one of us is guilty probably every single day of this exact sort of insincerity. We're guilty of what we can't tolerate in other people. The passage that that we come to this morning, the point of it is pretty straightforward. The point of it is that sincerity is actually a crucial implication of the gospel. That if you believe the basic Christian message about what God has done in Jesus to save sinners who don't deserve it, then what that will look like in your life is sincerity. See, the problems that that Paul was writing to correct in this letter. We talked about this a couple, two or three weeks back, so for those of you who are visiting today or, or new to Trinity, I'll just tell you that the, the problem that Paul was writing to sort of help his friends see wasn't that they had some sort of wrong idea about something. It wasn't, it wasn't that they were believing false things. It wasn't a problem of theology, if you will. Some of his letters were written about that, not this one. The problem he was writing to correct is that they had this huge disconnect between the ideas they believed and the way they were living. There was some sort of gap that they hadn't bridged yet. They claimed to believe some things about God and what he'd done in Jesus, but but their lives weren't matching up. In other words, there was a sincerity problem. Jesus wasn't making a difference in their behavior or their outlook or their aspiration in life. 
Paul writes here in this section we're going to look at this morning to show them that sincerity is a mark of somebody who understands and embraces what God has done for us in Jesus. And it comes out, that point comes out in Paul's defense of his own sincerity in the way that he's treated them. Now we're going to talk a lot more about what I mean by sincerity. I haven't defined that term. I want to let Paul do that for us. I want to make it really clear why sincerity is important. That's the first thing we're going to do. We're going to see the importance of sincerity in the way that Paul defends his own sincerity. But then I want to show you that that Paul also points us to a motive for sincerity that should be in anyone who believes in Jesus and trusts him for what he can't provide on his own. There's a, there's a powerful motive for sincerity for all of us who believe God has been faithful to his promises. And then I want you to see the power for sincerity, that God has given us more than just a model that we have to strive for, but he's actually given us resources that are crucial to our ability to, to be sincere people. So I want to sort of create the context create a sense of desire for sincerity, why we all want it, why we should, why it's important and worth defending and seeking after, and then show you how God makes it possible for us to have exactly what it is we want, both in other people and in ourselves. We're going to try to do this using Paul's terms, so I want to begin by reading the passage this morning. I'm going to read 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 12 to 22, and I want to ask you to stand with me now in honor of God's word while I read it. This is the word of the Lord. For our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience, that we behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God, and supremely so toward you. For we're not writing to you anything other than what you read and understand, and I hope you will fully understand, just as you did partially understand us, That on the day of our Lord Jesus, you will boast of us, as we will boast of you. Because I was sure of this, I wanted to come to you first, so that you might have a second experience of grace. I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia, and to come back to you from Macedonia, and have you send me on my way to Judea. Was I vacillating when I wanted to do this? Do I make my plans according to the flesh, ready to say, yes, yes, and no, no, at the same time? As surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, Silvanus and Timothy and I, was not yes and no, but in him it is always yes. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That's why it's through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who's also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. This is God's word. You can be seated. I want to start by making sure it's clear the importance of sincerity. This this passage here is Paul's first main point in the letter. Everything he said so far in chapter 1 has been the kind of things you typically say to open up a letter, a greeting, a, a statement of who it is that's writing and who they're writing to and a sort of blessing or, or greeting that they start out with. And now Paul gets to the point. In fact, that verse, verse 12, the first one that we read, one of the commentators I read this week says it's kind of like a, a topic sentence for the rest of the letter. Paul's basically writing a letter about sincerity to defend his own sincerity and to make it clear to the Corinthians why it's so important that they should be sincere too. 
So I want to make sure first that you understand what he's talking about and why he'd need to be talking about it. In verse 12, Paul says that he behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity. He's using a couple of terms that are basically synonyms for one another. Other things that they, that they suggest, besides the words that are in my translation, simplicity and godly sincerity, other things are like wholeness. Someone who's unified in themselves. Like a clear sense of who they are and actions that back it up. Where the, it's a life that, 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 that is cohesive and sensible. It, it, they, these words connote purity or transparency. Think of the sincerity of a diamond, if you will. That would be a, a synonym here. It would be the kind of purity of a diamond. One where, uh, you know, a good diamond, one that you're going to be willing to shell out some serious cash for, is one without blemishes or inclusions, things that cloud it. Color that isn't clear or, 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 or little specks of blackness inside the middle of the diamond that affect its shine. Think of it as something you can see straight through. And then apply it to life, and what you get is a person who's transparent, who's straightforward, who says what they mean, who does what they say. They don't speak out of both sides of their mouth. What you see is what you get. That's what Paul's talking about. That's what he means by sincerity. We know from experience how frustrating it is to be on the receiving end of insincerity. I mean, I used a political example earlier because I think that's just a classic one that all of us can connect with. I mean, I remember back during the during the, uh, during the campaign season, it was still in the primary season, there was all these debates. It was like every weekend there'd be some debate between like the 25 people who were running for president at the time. And, uh, and I, wouldn't, I didn't have the, 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 the patience or the interest to watch the debates, but sometimes I would look at this fact checker feature that Washington Post emailed to me on the, mon- the, the mornings after these debates. And it was really helpful because they would take these claims that politicians are making, usually attached to some sort of number, some sort of study that they're citing, and they would help you see that yeah, there usually is some sort of kernel of truth here, right? But a very, very small slice of it. They're not exactly lying. They wouldn't do that in this day and age when fact-checking is so easy. But they're spinning, right? They're taking something true and really trying to get you to believe something other than what is true. And I don't like that. That's frustrating. It comes from a person who's working you. Right? Who's trying to persuade you. Who's trying to put you to some sort of use. The truth is that we're all on the giving end. Not just the receiving end, but the giving end of this sort of insincerity too. Sometimes we say we want to get together with somebody when we have no intention of making it happen. Maybe even make a plan that we know we're just going to cancel in the end. Maybe this is getting closer to my, to, to my tendencies that God's been sanctifying me of. Maybe it's more like giving one set of feedback to a person when they're with you and another set of feedback about that person when they're not. You know, maybe it's a, somebody comes to you and they want you to take a look at their papers. I spent many, many years in graduate school. We looked at each other's papers a lot. What do you think about this? Well, you know, it's good. Good. You know, I, I, I like it. I think I can see what you're trying to say. Uh, that was an interesting anecdote. That you, you good. I think you're fine. Where secretly I'm thinking, hopefully not saying to somebody else, but at least secretly thinking, oh man, <laughs> oh man, they are in for a lot of red ink on this. 
maybe I was speaking the truth when I told them it was a good paper. When I was telling them specific things that were good about that paper. I really thought those things were good, but that was just a tiny little slice of the whole. But I didn't have the courage to tell them the truth. Maybe it's somebody coming to you, asking you if, to break down some sort of interaction that you witnessed. Do you think that I should have said this? Or was it okay that I said that to them? And you're thinking, yeah, sure, absolutely, that was fine. Then as soon as they're gone, can you believe what she said? What was she thinking? Or maybe it's just being easy to please, wanting to, wanting to be seen as a person who's very easy to please, who's, who's up for anything, who'll, who, 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 will, who will always be there for you, deferential to a fault. That's been something God's been breaking me of. Deferential to a fault in word, but maybe not in heart. Southern enough, I'm a southerner, all right? I'm going to go ahead and talk on my people here. Southern enough to never tell anybody no, but then to nurture in my heart some sort of different feeling towards what I've just agreed to. Maybe it's just as simple as saying something about somebody else that you'd be embarrassed to have them over here. I don't know. There's a few examples. Hopefully your wheels are turning and you're seeing the truth. That every single one of us is guilty of this kind of insincerity. Every one of us is falling short of the kind of sincerity that Paul is celebrating here. Where we're just, what you see is what you get people. Where when we say something, we follow through on it. Now, apparently what Paul has been accused of by his friends in Corinth is being an insincere person. At least he's worried that he's perceived that way. And the reason that he's worried he'd be perceived that way, whether this ever came to the surface or not, is that he changed his travel plans. Did you get that from those first verses that we read in our passage? There was all this talk of travel plans. And I said I was going to go here, but then I actually meant to go over here. And Paul knows that there are people in Corinth who believe he was talking out of both sides of his mouth when he said he was going to come visit them and then didn't. Now, commentators differ about what actually went on here. It's not that clear. They would have known. I mean, he was writing to people who would have known exactly what he was talking about. And one of the, one of the things that we speculate on is maybe, maybe, it, maybe he had written to them saying, I'm going to come and visit you. I've got to go to Macedonia. You're on the way. I'll stop on my way. We'll hang out. I'll go to Macedonia, I'll come back, I'll stop here on my way back, and you can help me, give me the supplies and the, the cash that I'm going to need to make it back to Judea. But then somehow, in the middle of that, he got a bad report from one of his friends who had been visiting at Corinth. Something serious was going wrong in that church, so he had to go see him then. He refers a little bit later to what he calls a painful visit, and how he didn't want to make another one. Something happened, and it changed his plans. And it made him vulnerable to people in Corinth thinking Paul was a man who can't be trusted. Someone who says one thing and does another. Now, whatever it is that, that, that happened behind his need to defend himself here, the main thing I want you to see is how important he takes sincerity. It's important enough to him to be seen as a man who's transparent and straightforward that he writes a letter to make sure they're convinced of it. Paul was, confused, uh, was, was accused of all sorts of things throughout his ministry. It was nothing unusual for him to be on the receiving end of somebody else's criticism. That happened all the time. And most of that criticism, we assume, he just didn't even worry to, to, to push back on. He didn't defend himself. But here, being accused of being insincere, he writes an entire letter 
to put that one to rest. That's how important Paul believes sincerity is. He writes that letter not just to protect his own reputation, but because he wants the Corinthians to take sincerity as, as significantly, to take it as seriously as he does. He wants me and you to take sincerity, its importance, as seriously as he does. I believe that verse 12, the topic sentence for, for most of the book, points us ahead to why sincerity is so important for Paul and for us. And it sets us up to know why Paul says what he says next. We're going to spend all the rest of our time in four verses at the end of this passage where Paul points us to the promises of God and to what God has given us. When I first started reading over this passage to get ready to, to, to talk about it this morning, I really saw these next verses as a kind of aside, as kind of a rabbit trail that Paul runs down. I even thought about calling the message the beautiful point beside the point because he's talking about travel plans and then he can't help himself but start riffing on the gospel. But what I saw on, on more and more and more reading is that, no, actually, these things that he says on the gospel, the things we're going to unpack together for the rest of our time, they are directly connected to what he says about sincerity. You need to see this connection. In verse 12, Paul says, we've behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity. And then he says a little more about what he means. That means we haven't behaved by earthly wisdom or fleshly wisdom, the kind of wisdom that the Corinthians were following, the kind of wisdom that really cares about what people think about you, the kind that's obsessed by status. That's not how we've behaved. We've behaved with godly sincerity, he says, because we've behaved by the grace of God. That's verse 12. Not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God. Translation, sincerity in ourselves is one way the grace of God shows up in our lives. If we want to live lives that match up with how God has treated us in Jesus, sincerity is essential. And the rest of this section explains how God's grace toward us leads to sincerity in us. I want to show you both the motive for sincerity that comes out in verses 19 and 20 and then jump to the power for sincerity that comes out in verses 21 and 22. In verse 19, Paul gives us his motive for the sincerity that he's shown to them. His words to them about his travel plans and about everything else, his words to them about Jesus, everything that he's told them, have not been yes and no at the same time, he says. Was I vacillating, verse 17, when I wanted to do this? Do I make plans according to the flesh, ready to talk out both sides of my mouth and say yes over here and no over here at exactly the same time? No, he says. As surely as God is faithful, I have not done that. And in verse 19, he gives us a four. This means he's about to tell us why. He's about to explain or justify something he's just said. I act with sincerity, he says, because... Verse 19, the Son of God, Jesus, the one he told them about, he wasn't yes and no, but always yes. In fact, he says in verse 20, all the promises of God are yes in him. But what's Paul saying here? Hopefully you can now see what he's trying to do. Let me understand what he's trying to say. What he's trying to do is show you why sincerity is not optional for Christians and why he's willing to defend his own. Now he's showing why it's so important to him. For, verse 19 says, the Son of God was always yes. And in him, all the promises of God are yes. What does that mean? What's he saying? Here's what he's saying. 
He's saying that God is completely and perfectly and sincerely faithful to everything that he's promised to do. He didn't make promises to Israel with his metaphorical fingers crossed behind his back like some kind of bullying big kid on the school playground. He didn't couch his promises in a bunch of fine print hiding the nitty-gritty details like some sort of home warranty or extra protection for your vacuum cleaner warranty provider. There's no big promises here that he never intended to deliver on like some sort of career politician. He just said what he would do, clearly, and now he's doing it perfectly in Jesus. Paul's saying he acted sincerely and he wants them to know he's acted sincerely because God has acted sincerely. I mentioned earlier, the first few times through, I thought this was a rabbit trail, but, but now I can see Paul is still talking about the importance of his own sincerity. He's just tying it back to the character of God that he wants to honor with his life. Paul's saying that all of the Old Testament builds to Jesus. That's what's built into his statement here, that all of the Old Testament and all of its promises were aimed at him. I think another way to think about it is Paul's suggesting all of the Old Testament, all of the backstory on how God relates to his people was building a sense of a series of questions. It was raising a series of expectations, questions about whether God would or would not deliver. And that every question the Old Testament raised, God answered in Jesus with a resounding yes. And we could go into a lot of different examples here. I just want to, for those of you who are at Trinity in the fall, think back to the Judges series. We spent several months together looking at this ugly period in Israel's history where everything was going wrong, it seemed like, and Israel was the reason why. They were their own worst enemies there. God had made promises that he was going to be for them, that he was going to establish them in the land and give them a people and make them useful for all the peoples of the world. But look at who he had to deal with. These people couldn't remember him for one generation. They were constantly turning to other idols. And so judges built this tension. Is God going to be for us or against us? Is, is he going to judge us in his justice and holiness? Or is he going to deliver us by his grace and mercy? And he keeps doing both. He keeps punishing them and delivering them. Punishing them and delivering them. And the whole thing builds this tension, this question. Can God show justice and mercy at once? And in Jesus, we have The resounding yes. In Jesus, God became just and justifier of the one who has faith in him, Paul tells us in his letter to the Romans. Or consider Psalm 130. We read it together just a little bit earlier in our service. With the Lord there is steadfast love. With him there's plentiful redemption. And he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Really? From all his iniquities? Did you read the Old Testament? You see what these people were doing? Can he really deliver them even from themselves? And in Jesus we have his resounding yes. Or consider Jeremiah 31, 33 and 34. This is the covenant God said that I'll make with them. With the house of Israel after those days. I'll put my law within them. I'll write it on their hearts. So they'll love what I do. What I want. What I've asked of them. I'll be their God and they shall be my people and no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall know me. I'll give them direct access to me. From the least of them to the greatest. 
really? New hearts? New desires to do what is good? Personal and direct knowledge of God for everybody? And in Jesus, God made flesh, we hear God's yes. Or Isaiah 25, verse 8. The promise that he will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. And the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. Really? Swallow up death? We're all still dying. Wipe away tears? We're, we're all still weeping. And in Jesus, the resurrection and the life, we hear God say to us, Yes! Friends, the message of the gospel is that God didn't just send prophets to us because of our ignorance. He didn't just send lawgivers to us because of our disobedience. He didn't just send more animals to us because of the sins that needed sacrifices. He sent us His Son. The same God who made us by His own word took on a body just like ours, lived a life that was just like ours, died a death just like ours. Only this God made flesh did not stay dead. Three days He laid in the tomb. On the third day He rose again. He was seen by hundreds and hundreds of people who attested to it. And in his resurrection, he tells us it's proof. This God made flesh has done everything necessary for you to be made clean and holy, for you to know peace and life, for you to have joy even in the midst of sorrow while you wait for him to return. That's the message of the gospel. And if you believe it, then in Jesus, you have God's yes to your deepest, most troubling questions. Maybe you're asking, I know some people are forgiven. I get that it's possible in some cases, but I've done things. I've really done things. You don't know what I've done. No one could accept me. But the Bible says that his steadfast love covers all iniquity. You say, even mine? And Jesus says to you, yes, it is finished. Maybe you say this morning, I'm stuck in sin. I get that some people have problems. Everybody's sinful, nobody's perfect. But I'm stuck. I have no power over the addictions that have taken control of my life. Surely when God said that he would give new hearts, clean and pure hearts, hearts that love what's good and beautiful, he had somebody else in mind, not me. I've tried it all. Can he do that for me? Even me? And in Jesus, God has answered you, yes! Perhaps you say, people I love have been or are are now being torn away from me by death. That happened to many of you last year. It's happening to some of you right now. We all know our bodies are dying too. And Jesus said that he would swallow up death. Will he? Yes! 
I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will never die. But I'm depressed, you say. And I've got reason to be. My life is so much less than what I wanted. I'm so disappointed by me. Can he really wipe away my tears? God has answered you in Jesus. Yes, he is the great high priest. He knows our weakness from experience. He understands sorrow because he grieved deeply. And he knows how to comfort you. God's answer in Jesus is always yes. He is faithful. He is only and always faithful. There are no gotchas. There are no fine print. There are no first come, first serve quotas. He is faithful to everyone who will ever turn to him for forgiveness and redemption and life. And that means you. So if if we are to operate by the grace of God, with God's love for us as a model for how we treat other people, then we won't talk out of both sides of our mouth. Not anymore. We won't spin the truth. We won't hold back our full or true intentions. We'll shoot straight. We'll follow through on what we say. Period. God's love for us is our motive. That's the model Paul is following. But thanks be to God, he's given us far more than just a model. Verse 21, Paul adds an and. Paul's great about using connecting words that help us follow his train of thought. He's always got a train of thought, and if we just follow those connecting words, we can figure out what it is. So we've seen the importance of sincerity. He goes on all his traveling plans. He wants you to believe that he isn't someone who vacillates, who says one thing and then does another thing. And he's really into that for God is faithful like that, and he wants to be like God. But then in verse 20, he says, and... What's more, or verse 21, and not only has God given us a model, and it is God who establishes us with you in Christ. And then he launches in to a list of things that God has given to every person who's in Jesus. See, if all we had in God was a model, if God were the type of father who wants you to be like him, but is always disappointed at how far short you fall, Those fathers exist. If God were a father like that, always comparing you to himself, that's a recipe for failure and self-loathing, not for any kind of hope and peace and life. God isn't one of those fathers. He has given us exactly what we need to overcome our tendencies to shade the truth and to speak and act as people of integrity, unified in ourselves, transparent and sincere. He's given us exactly what we need, and I want you to see it, okay? So in verse 21, he says, and he's established us with you in Christ. Think of that as he has redefined who you are. He has set your life on a new platform. He has laid the foundation. He's poured it concrete on top of steel rebar, and he has established you there. He has told you something different about who you are. He's made you to be different. Think about that when you read that line. He's established us with Christ. So what does that really mean? The next three clauses point the way. God has established us with you in Christ. What has he done to establish us, to redefine who we are? 
Paul lists three gifts in these verses. Three gifts that have to do with our identity. These are three gifts given to you if you're a Christian this morning. There are three gifts that are available to you if you want to be. I want to go one by one through the three gifts that Paul mentions and help you see what he has in mind. And then that'll help us see what this has to do with living as sincere people before God and before each other. Three gifts. Here's the first one. Gift number one. Paul tells us that God has anointed us. Now, in the original language, what you can't see here, if all you guys see the English one like I've got here, what you can't see is that he's basically just said, God has established us with you in Christ and has Christed us. This word anointed is the same word for Christ. Christ just means anointed one. So whatever else Paul might be saying, he's saying he has attached you to Jesus. He has given you a gift of Jesus' identity as yours. Think of everything that's true of Jesus and recognize it's also true of you. That's what it means to be anointed. It means to be made in Christ. I know it's a little bit abstract, but it's the key to the whole gospel. Because what Paul is saying is that God has decided by his own grace and apart from anything in us, he has decided to treat us like we had done what Jesus had done. He has decided to look at us like he looks at Jesus. He's decided to see Jesus when he sees us. And you know what that means. What does the Bible tell us about how God views Jesus? Jesus is perfectly righteous. He did everything he was supposed to do. He never did anything wrong. He only ever does right. That means you, in God's eyes, are righteous. Or think of God speaking over Christ at his baptism. This is my beloved son. And imagine God speaking over you, beloved, with whom I am well pleased. God is pleased with you. You make God happy. In Jesus. God reveals himself to his son. Jesus talks about that in John. He opens up to him. He involves him in what he's doing. He does that for you. He shows you what he's like. He tells you what his plans are. He asks you to join him as his partner in what he's doing in the world. Just like Jesus. Because you're in Jesus. And he always listens to his son. He could never turn his son away. And if you have been anointed, if you've been Christed, if you've been attached to Jesus, he will never turn you away. Gift number two. Who has also put his seal on us. Verse 22. What has God done to establish us? To give us a new identity different from the one we had? To, just, to actually give us the power that we need? to embrace the model that he set for us, he's put his seal on us. If you're like me, that probably doesn't immediately communicate much to you. It helps to know what that means. In its original context, people would have known immediately, he's talking about the seal of authority or ownership that a king would place on some sort of transmission that he was giving. He's sending like a letter to some other part of the realm. He'd put his little ring thing into some wax and smack that onto the letter. It proves this is mine. I stand by it and for it. 
This belongs to me. So to put his seal on us is to say that God has marked us off as uniquely his. God has made us untouchable by anyone else. Not because he had to, but because he wanted to. He set his seal on us. It's his initiative, not ours. It's not like we won some sort of beauty contest and then he put his seal on us. He came down and looked at a sea of unworthy people and he just sealed us. He sought us out. He desired us. Why? Because of Jesus. Only because of Jesus. I think of this uh, with a little more, I think a little more resonance in our time is if you ever go to like a, uh, an antique store or a flea market or a state sale or something, sometimes you'll come across some big dresser that's got a red tag hanging from the knob and it says sold. What that tells you, just as an ancient seal would have told in its own time, is that somebody went on a search. They looked and looked, desiring something for their own pleasure. And they found it. They bought it. They paid for it. They marked it as theirs. And it is. You, friend, if you're in Christ, are searched out. You are selected. You are bought and paid for. There's an echo here, I think, of what God promised in Isaiah 43. There he said, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name, you're mine. When you pass through the waters, I'll be with you. Through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. And when you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame will not consume you, not one who's had his seal set on them. Untouchable. For I am the Lord your God. Listen, friends, these are words for you if you're in Christ. I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. You are precious in my eyes and honored. And I love you. You say, me? And in Jesus, and only because of Jesus, and not for anything good in you, he says, yes, you. One last gift. Verse 22 says, He has given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. Think of his spirit not as a promise, but as a guarantee. Think of it like earnest money, like a foretaste of something that's coming in full later. It's real, it's powerful, it's not just a word, it's an experience. He has given you a guarantee. He himself has come into you. The Spirit's promises are so sweet all through the Scriptures. It's the Spirit through whom we know the promise of of new desires, of a heart that wants what's right and not what's wrong, of life, of freedom from the law of sin and death. Think of Romans 8. The Spirit that reminds us that we're children of God. It's called the Spirit of adoption. It won't let us forget who we are. That's what God has given us in His Spirit. His presence inside of us, renovating us while we sleep, while we wait, 
while we work and go through our normal days, while we do what we do, he is working on us by his spirit to help us believe. What Paul has given us here is a description of what God has done to establish us, of what he has given us to actually make us different than what we were, of the power source he's planted inside of us to help us rise above our own limitations. Now, I want to encourage you to remind yourself of these gifts every day. You might think about taking these three gifts and writing them down on some sort of sticky note and putting them on your mirror where you brush your teeth or on your dashboard where you drive and face Nashville traffic every day on the way to work. Put it somewhere you're going to see it. Pray through them before you spend time with someone you know you're tempted to please. Ask your friends to remind you of these gifts when you're especially tempted to forget who you are. Why is this so important? What does it have to do with sincerity? Do you remember back to the topic sentence in verse 12? Paul said there, he's sincere by the grace of God, not fleshly or earthly wisdom. Now, seeing what he said, I think we can start to see what he he meant then. He walks with godly sincerity because he's operating from the grace of God. God's grace has entered into the command center of his life, into his heart. It controls him now. He's operating not from the natural desires for status that normally control how we operate, what he calls earthly wisdom. Earthly wisdom tells me you've got to protect your image. Don't let them see what you really are. You've got to shade the truth here. Earthly wisdom says, this is a chance to prove yourself. You don't want to let them down. They might think less of you. Prove yourself. Shade the truth. Earthly wisdom guides me to protect or prove myself no matter what I do. And when that's what's guiding me, I'm always going to be insincere. I can't handle the truth. Not then. Not what that would do for me in other people's eyes. But if what I'm living by is the grace of God, if I realize I don't have to establish myself because God has established me in Christ, what do I have to prove? What's left to defend then, friends? God is the one who justifies. Who is there to condemn? Why not just be sincere by the grace of God come what may Father this sincerity is something we want we, we want it because when we're insincere we feel guilty about it, we know we shouldn't be we know we don't like it when other people treat us that way we know from experience we don't have the power to overcome it either we're thankful to you for the sweet words you've spoken to us through this letter this morning words of hope even for us. Help us now to claim them. Help us to live for your eyes, to live under your smiling gaze, rather than the eyes of those who are around us, rather than from fear of what they might think. And make us people who shoot straight to your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.